Hey guys, welcome back to the internet work. We have another episode of our Ask a Fellow series today, all about asthma exacerbations. Uh, we have a respirology fellow with us today. So can you introduce yourself? Hi everyone, my name is Alina Blazer. And as Allison said, I'm a fifth year respirology fellow at the University of Toronto. And I'm pursuing a subspecialty fellowship next year in asthma and airway disease. So the case starts with a 35-year-old woman presents to the emergency room with marked dyspnea. She reports a history of asthma for which she uses Simbacort, which is budesonide and Fermoterol, one inhalation twice daily, in addition to occasionally using salbutamol. Over the past three days, she reports increasing shortness of breath associated with worsening cough and wheezing. Today, she has been using her salbutamol inhaler every two hours with minimal improvement in her symptoms. En route to the hospital, the EMS administered 5 milligrams of nebulized salbutamol. On your assessment, she appears in distress, is using accessory muscles, and only able to speak in three-word sentences. Her resting oxygen saturation is 92%. All right, so taking a step back, how do we define and recognize an asthma exacerbation? An asthma exacerbation is an acute or subacute episode of increased dyspnea, cough, chest tightness, or wheezing associated with decreased lung function. There are generally two patterns to asthma exacerbations. The first, and generally more common, is a subacute worsening of symptoms over a number of days. The second pattern is an acute deterioration over hours. More objectively, patients will have a decline in lung function, as estimated by spirometry or peak expiratory flow measurements, such as peak expiratory flow of less than 75% of their best or their predicted value. Peak expiratory flow as a percentage of predicted gives a rough guide in the absence of a known previous best value. Keep in mind that peak expiratory flow is very effort dependent, um, but it can provide a clue taken in context with the clinical history that a patient is experiencing an exacerbation. So what, what are the clinical features that would be consistent with a severe asthma exacerbation then? Yeah, so the clinical features to be on alert for would be tachypnea or a respiratory rate greater than 25 uh, breaths per minute, uh, tachycardia, uh, an inability to complete sentences in one breath, a silent chest, accessory muscle use or poor respiratory effort, and certainly cyanosis hypotension and exhaustion and altered LOC would be severe clinical findings. So it sounds like asthma exacerbations then can kind of come in many different forms and severity. How do we decide who is at risk for a severe asthma exacerbation? Great question. Uh, I'll first start by saying that the best way to really treat an asthma exacerbation is to prevent them from happening in the first place. And the first way to do that is to understand who is at increased risk. Previous asthma history is essential to determining the risk of exacerbations in the future. Risk factors for death from asthma include previous severe exacerbations, meaning those that require intubation or ICU admission, two or more hospitalizations for asthma in the past year, three or more emergency room visits for asthma in the past year, uh, any hospitalization or ED visit in the last month, using more than two canisters of your short-acting bronchodilator per month, if you have difficulty perceiving your asthma symptoms or the severity of your exacerbations, and if you have a lack of a written asthma action plan or adherence to your medications. So certainly a lot of things to remember. 
Um, the other thing to consider is that psychosocial factors also play a very important role in who is at risk for exacerbations. Uh, it is known that low socioeconomic status, illicit drug use, and serious mental health concerns have also been associated with increased risk of death from asthma. All right, so say we have a patient that walks into the emergency department um, and we get this referral for an asthma exacerbation. What are some of the things that we have to do acutely to manage her in the emergency department? Uh, sure, yeah. So this is something that I feel we have less experience with as internists, so I think it's important for us to review this, so I'm glad you asked. Um, as always, start with your ABCs. Uh, apply oxygen to maintain an oxygen saturation of greater than 94%. Um, and the next step is really airway bronchodilation. Depending on which guideline you read, there are slightly different recommendations out there on the exact dosing of bronchodilators, but the general message is, is to be generous. Uh, this is not when you order something Q4 hours as needed. Um, I would start with something like salbutamol via um, a nebulizer if available, otherwise via a MDI with a spacer device. Um, I would repeat that every 15 to 20 minutes for one to two hours, and then every one to four hours as needed. Um, if a patient isn't responding to that, you can actually consider continuized, uh, continuous excuse me, nebulization at five to 10 milligrams per hour if your institution allows that. Um, you can also use uh, Atrovent, um, 0.5 milligrams via nebulizer every 20 minutes and then as needed, or likewise also with an MDI. If using an MDI, the dosing would be about 100 micrograms of Ventolin or um, times eight puffs. And then again, you can repeat every 15 to 20 minutes up to four hours, and then every one to two, four hours as needed. The dosing for Atrovent would be 20 micrograms or eight puffs every 20 minutes for up to three hours, and then as needed after that. Um, some things that you should note, though, is that the addition of Atrovent or Ipratropium to a short-acting beta agonist has been shown to be associated with lower hospitalization rates in adults compared to using a short-acting beta agonist alone. So you should try to use the two in combination if you can. Also, the method of your bronchodilator delivery does not really appear to affect outcomes. Um, a Cochrane review found that among patients presenting with a severe exacerbation, there was no association of um, treatment with a short-acting beta agonist via a nebulizer versus treatment via an MDI and a spacer device for the outcomes of hospitalization rates after being seen in the emergency department. So basically, we can use either depending on what's available, and if you're worrying about sort of aerosolizing um, sort of procedures, then maybe you want to stick with your MDIs um, as it stands. There's no real difference in hospitalization rates. That's right, but I would add that that's an MDI with a spacer device um, as opposed to just using the uh, inhaler directly. Right. Once we're done with our basic ABCs, we've administered um, some puffers, um, what do we do next? The next thing that we need to do is reduce airway inflammation. So upfront, you can give prednisone either orally 40 to 50 milligrams or IV methylprednisolone. Uh, do not wait. Um, while the effect on inflammation reduction can take hours, uh, prednisone can upregulate glucocorticoid-mediated upregulation of beta-2 receptors, and that can occur within the first hour. So it is beneficial to do this up front 
and then your um, beta agonists will have kind of more bang for their buck. Um, other helpful management suggestions include starting IV fluids to optimize preload, especially if you think your patient might be heading towards intubation. And I would avoid any sedatives or narcotics to preserve their respiratory effort. If life-threatening features of an asthma exacerbation are present, um, I remind everyone to seek help early. So discuss with either your senior clinician or the ICU team immediately. You can also consider giving IV magnesium sulfate, usually given as a two gram infusion over 20 minutes at this point. Um, it apparently has some additional bronchodilator effect. Um, epinephrine can be used, but is generally not necessary if the patient can receive inhaled beta agonists and its routine use is not recommended in current guidelines. And I'm just going to add here that the dose of IV magnesium is different than if you were giving magnesium sulfate as, so for instance, for magnesium replacement, that's usually given as one gram over an hour. This is a real um, fast push of IV magnesium. So the two grams over 20 minutes is a different time frame that you need to use for asthma exacerbations. So the other thing that I'm curious about are the strategies for non-invasive ventilation or intubation. Um, previously, we've been taught about not using non-invasive ventilation for like, such as things like BiPAP, um, but more and more I'm seeing it used, especially in the emergency department, to try and prevent intubation. Um, what have you seen done? Is there any sort of evidence behind the practices that we're doing or what we should be doing? Yeah, I would agree. It's certainly something you're seeing more and more. Uh, so non-invasive ventilation or NIV is certainly very well established in the management of certain types of ventilatory failure, such as those caused by exacerbations of COPD. And there certainly is more limited data on the use of NIV in asthma, but there is some evidence out there. Um, for example, a 2012 Cochrane review based on six small trials concluded that the use of NIV did reduce the number of hospitalizations by increasing the number of patients discharged from the ED and also improved respiratory rate and pulmonary function measures of expiratory flow during hospitalization. However, evidence suggestive of improvement in mortality, intubation rate, or hospital or intensive care unit length of stay was lacking. Um, there was subsequently a large U.S. multicenter observational study of almost 14,000 acute asthmatic patients published in 2014, and they used a propensity match analysis to show that patients successfully treated with NIV did show lower mortality and a shorter length of stay than those receiving initial invasive ventilation. However, I want to make clear that this is observational retrospective data and it is likely that the patients selected for initial NIV were a lower risk group overall. Uh, nonetheless, though, I think that this suggests that NIV can be used safely and effectively in acute asthma in the right patient, but larger RCTs are still needed to really fully elucidate the role of non-invasive ventilation during asthma exacerbations. And so what about intubation uh, then? Ideally, of course, we're going to try to avoid intubation if we can. Um, but when do we think about asking for help from our critical care team to consider intubation? Are there any specific clinical features or blood work that we need to do or monitor to make this assessment? Yeah, so this is something I think that's really important for internists to be aware of. Um, the decision to intubate during a severe asthma attack is a clinical one. Um, and I would also add that these patients are not 
your COPD patients that sort of linger in a stably unstable place for a long time, they can decompensate quickly. And so some of the features that I would look out for would be to monitor for any change in the patient's mental status, such as their inability to cooperate with inhaled medications, um, a reduction in their respiratory rate, or any inability to maintain their current respiratory uh, effort. All of those suggest that the patient is tiring and you should be considering intubation and calling your ICU team quickly. Lab work that would corroborate those findings would include worsening or really any hypercapnia and the development of respiratory acidosis. Hypoxia, so in this case defined as an oxygen saturation less than 92%, despite high flow supplemental oxygen, would also certainly suggest that the patient requires uh, some additional help, such as intubation. Uh, and so as mentioned above, I really cannot stress, just get your critical care team involved early to help. And I think that this is something that is often not thought about because we're more commonly seeing COPD exacerbations rather than asthma, which are really a different entity, although occasionally we try to treat them the same. Um, hypoxia is not commonly present in asthma exacerbations. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So patients may be tachypnic, but they're not hypoxic, unlike COPD exacerbations, where they tend to present with some degree of hypoxia when we're considering hospitalization. That's not necessarily the case for asthma. Well, yeah, because a lot of your COPD patients might be hypoxic at baseline. And so when they have an exacerbation, that hypoxia tends to get a little worse. In asthma, you're generally dealing with a younger, healthier population who should not be hypoxic at baseline. And so really any hypoxia in these patients is something that's abnormal from the beginning and should be treated as a warning sign. All right, so back to our clinical case. Um, just to review, we have a 35-year-old who's now presented with marked dyspnea with a history of asthma. She has increasing shortness of breath with worsening cough and wheezing. Her oxygen saturation is sitting at around 92%, which is sort of um, borderline where we're starting to get concerned for hypoxia. Um, and she is demonstrating some evidence of respiratory distress. Um, so is there any additional workup that needs to be done in the emergency department or do you just say this is an asthma exacerbation and we treat with all of the principles above? Uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to add on the hypoxia note as well. Again, 92 sounds pretty reasonable, but this is a young patient. They should not be at 92. And so even that finding should be considered abnormal in this case. Um, but back to the additional workup that should be done. Generally, a chest x-ray is only indicated if you're suspicious of a pneumothorax or a consolidation, or if a patient requires mechanical ventilation. Um, it doesn't have to be something that's done up front. Laboratory investigations, though, can be done to help rule out other diagnoses in the right clinical context. So for example, a troponin or a D-dimer to assess for an acute coronary syndrome or a pulmonary embolism, respectively. Um, blood gases can help to determine the severity of an attack. Um, patients should be hypocapnic as they are generally hyperventilating. And so a normal or an increasing PCO2 is a dangerous finding in an asthmatic patient and should warrant prompt assessment by the critical care team. 
Finally, investigations such as sputum cultures, uh, sputum cytometry, if available at your center, or a nasopharyngeal swab may be helpful to determine possible triggers or causes of the exacerbation. This is all to say that treatment upfront for the asthma exacerbation is the most important thing and do not delay treatment um, for investigations if you don't have to. Exactly. All right, so we've acutely stabilized your patient. Um, do all patients require admission to hospital? And if not, how do we assess who requires admission and who can be discharged? Yeah, so I think part of the reason that as internists we don't see this as much is because a lot of this is in fact managed in the emergency room and patients are discharged home before they necessarily get referred to general internal medicine. So certainly some patients will demonstrate a rapid response to therapy and guidelines do suggest that patients can be discharged home if uh, their peak expiratory flow rates are 70% or more of their predicted value or personal best and if symptoms are minimal or absent. However, it's important to note that some patients can take days to return to their baseline. Patients with an incomplete response to therapy, so let's say a peak expiratory flow um, of 50 to 70% of their predicted value or personal best and with mild symptoms should be assessed for admission on an individual basis, taking into account any risk factors for asthma-related death that we talked about earlier. So let's say our patient isn't back to baseline and they get admitted to the hospital. How should we manage them on the ward? Yeah, so the ongoing treatment is really an extension of the acute management. Um, so patients should continue to do a peak expiratory flow daily for monitoring for improvement. I generally prescribe standing salbutamol and apotropium Q4 hours with the number of inhalations ranging from two to four, depending on the patient and the severity of the exacerbation. Um, I will also add Q1 to 2 breakthrough dosing of Ventolin as well. And again, these are all with an MDI via an aero chamber. Steroids should be continued at a dose of 1 to 2 milligrams per kilogram for at least 5 to 7 days. Um, again, reminding everyone this is not COPD. There is no specific length. Um, but experts suggest using them until their peak expiratory flow is greater than 70%, um, and then completing a five to say seven day total course, understanding that individual patients may require a longer duration. Um, also, expert panels suggest continuing a patient's inhaled corticosteroids in addition to oral steroids, uh, but there's no clear guidelines on this. Um, if a patient is not already on an inhaled corticosteroid, uh, we would suggest that a patient would be initiated on it prior to discharge. Finally, I cannot stress this enough. If the patient does not have a respirologist, they should be referred for outpatient respirology assessment shortly after discharge, as any admission for an asthma exacerbation certainly indicates a, a severity of their disease. Right. So just to clarify with the steroids, is there a maximum dose? Um, so commonly we'll see sort of 50 milligrams is kind of the top dose that internists really use, um, unless there's stress dosing for, for say, an autoimmune condition. Um, but are you prescribing doses higher than that, say, if somebody is like 80 kilograms? It's a good question, one that we don't necessarily have great evidence for, um, but the guidelines would suggest that you do about one milligram per kilo. And so certainly in my patients with asthma exacerbations that have been severe, so for example, patients requiring ICU or non-invasive ventilation, I would do 
80 milligrams a day for a few days if they were um, 80 kilos, as you said. Right. And then the five to seven days is a total five to seven day course, um, not five to seven days after they reach their peak expiratory flow. Yeah. Although I will say that there's a lot of wiggle room in there. Um, Again, I think a lot of us are very used to COPD exacerbations where there's sort of a five-day course and we expect patients to kind of recover to their baseline relatively quickly. Sometimes with asthma exacerbations, it can really take them a while to return to their baseline. And patients might require longer than five to seven days, even sometimes two weeks. And that really becomes an individual decision based on the severity of their presentation and also a patient's individual factors. So just out of curiosity, since you are going to be sort of an airways and asthma airway uh, expert extraordinaire, um, and kind of you already are, um, <laughs> what about um, the new medication sort of targeting eosinophils, um, and what is the evidence there, and are we routinely testing for sputum eosinophils? Yeah, I'm glad you asked about this. Um, as you may be aware, the last decade has seen the development of a number of new biologic agents for the treatment of chronic eosinophilic asthma. Um, eosinophilic asthma is generally defined as an elevated peripheral eosinophil count, so that's on uh, a blood sample, as unfortunately, um, outside of essentially one academic center in Canada, sputum cytometry, uh, meaning sputum eosinophil assessment, is not readily available. Um, yeah. <laughs> One of these new biologic agents, though, is uh, benralizumab, which is an anti-interleukin-5 receptor monoclonal antibody. Um, and while it's been currently approved for the use uh, for use in chronic eosinophilic asthma as an add-on maintenance therapy, there has been some interest in studying its effects in acute asthma exacerbations as well. So in addition to a few case reports, there has been one interesting multicenter randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial examining the outcomes of benralizumab administration during an acute asthma exacerbation in the emergency department. It was a small trial, just 110 patients, um, and they gave the treatment groups a single dose of benralizumab in addition to the usual therapy of prednisone, inhaled corticosteroids, and bronchodilators. Compared with the placebo group, uh, a single dose of benralizumab was associated with reduced rates of asthma exacerbations over the next 12 weeks. Um, and there have also, as I said, been individual case reports of doing something similar. So this isn't quite ready for prime time yet, but it is a really interesting idea that could be coming in the future. All right. So like every Ask a Fellow episode, we ask our fellows um, to give us some take-home points. Uh, so I'll just let you take it away. Um, so I'd like to remind everyone that acute asthma exacerbations in the emergency room department can be severe and life-threatening. And it is important to take this condition seriously and remember that this is not just like a COPD patient. Um, institute quick management with frequent bronchodilator use and involve the help from senior colleagues and critical care early if need be. Peak expiratory flow measurements have limitations, um, but can be used in conjunction with careful clinical assessment to monitor the severity of the exacerbation and how your patient is improving. And finally, don't forget to involve your friendly local respirologist both to help with the inpatient management and for follow-up. Any patient with an asthma exacerbation warranting an ED visit or admission should be followed by a specialist. 
and keep me in a job. (laughs) (laughs) In a future job. We're still fellows here. That's right. So thank you so much, Alina, for um, joining us and doing this podcast with us. It's been very, very helpful. Um, We hope you guys stay healthy and stay safe and stay socially distanced in the upcoming weeks, um, wherever you're listening to us. Um, Thank you for all of your help um, in providing care to patients with underlying chronic illness, but also any of the patients who are starting to come in with the coronavirus. Um, We're all rooting for you and we're all in this together. Likewise. Thanks, Allison. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of the Internet Work on Asthma Exacerbation. Special thanks to Dr. Alina Blazer for joining us on this episode and for writing this episode for us. This episode was recorded and produced by Allison Lai. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and executively produced by Zara Morali and Leah Karianopoulos. Theme song by Lakshman Vizantha Mohan. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. As always, we have associated infographics and additional resources on our website at www.theinternetwork.com. Thank you for listening and we hope to see you again soon.